Have you ever wondered why some young people choose to end their lives? Ever wondered who they are and who they left behind? Have you ever wanted to hear their stories? Would you like answers to these questions and many more? Welcome to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu. Her mission is to shine light on these young people, create awareness for, and educate the world on youth suicide. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Dr. Lulu and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. Now, here's Dr. Lulu. Pages with Dr. Lulu, the podcast. How is everybody doing? We're talking about suicide today. We're going to talk about how it affected one of my colleagues, a beautiful soul, a doctor. She is going to share some of her experiences, personal and, of course, professional in this case. And we're going to see how she's doing, really, because believe it or not, we doctors, we hurt too when we see patients. We hurt too when our patients die by suicide. And of course, we hurt when our colleagues die by suicide. So Dr. Leah Houston is going to be in the building. She's going to share a page of her life with us, and she's going to write on one of our pages today. So Dr. Houston, welcome, 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 and thank you, beautiful soul, for joining the family. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lou. I think what you're doing is really amazing. It's very important work. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's God's work. That's where I put it. It's God's work. And you know, you're doing God's work too, because you're seeing patients every day in the emergency room, I might add. That is not easy at all. So um, without further ado, where do you want us to start, ma'am? Well, I just, I do want to say that I actually took some time off um, from the emergency department to take care of my mother, who is leukemia. So I haven't been working for about a year and a half now, uh, but I did work for a very long time and I took care of both children and adults. And, you know, it was, you know, I dealt with so many people who are having thoughts of suicide, um, people who made suicide attempts, um, but it was really the experience with the children and younger adults that really hit me hard especially because the resources that we have in this country for mental health for children are just very sparse. Um, and so, you know, knowing that you're a pediatrician who has taken an interest in this, it's, I think it's extremely important because I think it's our pediatricians who are really going to step in and, um, you know, do the extra work to make sure that uh, younger people who are struggling with these thoughts uh, are able to get the resources they need and also able to support their parents um, because it's not easy. It's not. It's not easy. I definitely appreciate you putting a plug there for repeats, docs. It's, it's a tough call. It's a tough call. And one of the reasons I, I quit medicine a year ago and now going back to medicine on my own terms as a direct primary care physician is because I need the hour to scratch the surface. I have to get to the bottom of it. 10 minutes is not going to do it. 20 minutes, is, 40 minutes is not going to cut it. I need an hour or more. To, to hang out with these and, kids and their family. And that's another thing. I mean, I really commend you 
because, you know, as, as you might have heard with my work with HPEC, I, I truly believe that physicians must have absolute autonomy in their practice in order to do the right thing for patients, period. Can you um, and oh my God, exactly. They right. must, they must, you know, direct primary care is amazing. Um, the movement has taken, um, there's been so much traction, so much interest. Patients are happier, they're healthier, they feel more connected to their physicians, um, you know, and I think pediatrics is a really, really important space for this because parents need that time and so do the patients. And so I, I congratulate you on your new practice and I think it's going to be great. I, well, I'm excited. I'm really excited. I had my first patient and we spent three good hours just bonding. And after we're done, everybody kind of got a big group hug. And then I took pictures with the little guy. The mom took pictures. And just for my own personal heart, just because this is my first patient, you know, it's like, oh, it's so exciting. But certainly it was a troubled kid, as you can imagine. And all of the frou-frou stuff, you know, we had to get through to get to the nitty gritty and hopefully help him and save him. And of course, save his family because that's ultimately what we want to do, one patient at a time. So yes, I appreciate that. So are you a Pete's ER doc? That's what. No, that's- I'm I'm just EM, but I worked in uh, several hospitals where I took care of pediatric patients as well. Um, you know, and uh, it, there's a lot of people who really just don't have access. They have a, a primary care pediatrician that's like on their list that their insurance gave them but they don't ever actually see the physician. Oftentimes they're seeing the non-physician provider or um, you know, they're just getting a call back from the nurse to tell them what to do. We see pediatric urgent care is cropping up all over the place. Um, but, you know, and I, I often took care of a lot of primary care issues because these people couldn't get in. You know, if you, if you have a child who's sick, you have to miss a day of work. And you know, so I saw a lot of people coming in two, three in the morning um, to take care of, uh, you know, uh, general care issues because they, they weren't able to take day off, day off work and things like that. So, wow. So anyway, um, just to kind of pivot a little bit as far as suicide and Dr. Leah Houston, where do you want to start? So, um, I think one of the reasons that I was, um, grateful to be invited to be on this podcast is because I did have an eight-year-old child who had a pretty aggressive suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. And um, this was a child that was a sign out to me. So I didn't see him initially. And uh, he actually slit his throat. Mm -hmm. He had a zone zone two neck injury. And he was found by the pediatric, or not the pediatric surgeon, by the surgical team to not have any penetration through the neck fascia. So he was essentially on a suicide hold. And so this, this was a very... To the, to the listeners, what a uh, zone two? Because I, even I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know anything about... So zone two neck injury is essentially the most dangerous area of the neck where all the vessels and the nerves of your neck are. So you can have a, you know, more of a zone one. It's a little upper. Zone three is... I mean, they're all pretty dangerous areas, actually. Of course, if it's your but, neck, you know. know. Yeah. Wow. So, um, you know, essentially, if it's penetrating certain parts and so I'm not a surgeon I'm not a trauma surgeon but if it's penetrating certain parts you're at a higher risk for vascular injury yes. that can lead to death or permanent disability so wow. um it's you know it's a it's a high level level one type of injury that 
you know, oftentimes you need to transfer, but because this was a very, you know, unique case, the patient was stable from a vital science perspective. Um, and because there was no pediatric psychiatric center, uh, it was a, you know, a situation where they, the, tr you know, the surgical team came down and evaluated him also. So, um, but either way, it was, it was a suicide attempt, and it was an eight-year-old, right? Either way. It was a very serious I know, it's just an eight-year-old. Oh, my goodness. Um, wow. And, you know, I think every suicide attempt is, is serious. You know, even people, you know, label things as cries for help. Um, I don't think that that's a smart thing to label uh, anyone's behavior towards self-harm as, as a cry for help because it diminishes... The significance yes, exactly. of it. Yes, um, you know, and, you know, there was uh, that study that came out in February, or was it in May of this year? I want to say February of this year in the American Psychiatric Journal of Adolescent something that said they found out that four and five and six year olds fully understood the meaning of death when they were. They were, when they were suicidal or not, they fully understood that it was permanent. Most people think, what does a seven-year-old know? What does an eight-year-old know? Well, I have news for you. Four, five, and six-year-olds were in that study, and they had enough. It was a significant number, and they fully understood when they were suicidal that it meant they wanted to die. They wanted to die permanently. They actually understood that. So this eight-year-old, he understood. Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> and... It really, the whole experience really broke my heart because this was a very busy emergency department. So I, I took the time to check in on him and reconnect with him a couple of times, but I didn't give him anywhere near in any way uh, the amount of time and energy that I felt he needed. You know, of course, we had social workers. We had a pediatrician in the hospital. We did have the general psychiatrist. Um, who eventually agreed to come and kind of talk to the parents and him. But, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, there was nowhere that would accept him. There were no pediatric, psychiatric beds that could um, give him the one-on-one -on -one suicide watch attention that he needed yes. and the pediatric, surgical, and psychiatric support. So instead, he sat in a very crowded inner city, very busy um, emergency department hallway. Oh God. Um, because the security guard, there's only one security guard available um, mm -hmm. who was supposed to be doing the one-on-one -on -one sit was the security guard for the whole department. And then there was one other one in the hospital. And so, oh you know, this poor child was subject to, you know, people experiencing homelessness who are, oh. you know, drunk and stumbling over. Oh around yeah. and screaming from patients and family members who were experiencing other forms of trauma and difficulties yes. and i'm just like this is the worst the worst exactly child i was gonna say it's um, almost like he, he wanted to die already this is like you know what after being in this hallway he's sure that he doesn't want to stay it doesn't make any sense and i you know so you know my time off you know absolutely and, and my time off you know, these were 12 hour shifts back to back. So during my couple hours of awake time between shifts, I was calling every single psychiatrist that I knew. Mm. Um, I had a friend, uh, a family member's friend who was a child psychologist. I'm calling everybody to see what can we do for this person? I'm getting names, I'm getting numbers, I'm trying to coordinate, you know, 
resources for this kid because the social worker in our department was unable to do anything, you know, and so I'm giving the parents lists of names and numbers. And, you know, eventually after 72 hours, he had been transferred to an appropriate, to an appropriate place. Thank God. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I still, to this day, you know, I wish that I had taken the parent's name and the number so I could follow up and see, yes. you know, what happened because it really, really broke my heart. You know, how long it, ago was that? Probably about two and a half, three years ago now. It was so sometime in 2016 or 17. Yes, ma'am. So he's going into so, middle school now. So this is middle school is so bad. Middle school yeah. is so bad. And he's going into middle school now. Well, you know, I mean, I know there's HIPAA laws and all that, but you were a doctor that took care of him. So you might be able to, to make it happen if you went to medical records and looked back in your archives or something. I just I probably could. They yeah. would love to hear your voice. I just know that they would love to hear your voice and just to kind of tell you how he's doing. And hopefully he's doing better, you know, because that takes a lot of, I know he's going to need intense psychotherapy, the scars, the memories, even just the 72 hours he spent in the hallway. Wow, I can't even. Yeah. Usually I take notes when people are talking. I can't even take notes. I, I'm just, I just, I'm picturing it in my mind. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Wow. Well, I mean, this experience is, is part of why, you know, I've always been an advocate for um, early childhood education and resources. You know, I think that we're doing the best that we can with the resources that we currently have, but I genuinely don't think that we're getting enough um, emotional support for parents and children in the most early years. Um, You know, education around conflict resolution, um, emotional intelligence training, um, you know, dealing with emotions. We don't learn any of that. We don't learn. You know, we, we don't, don't learn, learn any of that. School, we don't learn it at home. We don't enhance. You know, the numbers are rising, as you as you can, as you know. This is why we are where we are now. This is why it's every forty seconds there's a suicide. However, by twenty twenty, the WHO has predicted that it's going to be every twenty seconds there's a suicide worldwide. Now that being said, these are only suicides that are reported, as you know. Right. Most people exactly. don't talk about it. So the real so many today might be every second. We don't know. You know, we were talking. I know two physicians who committed suicide and both of them, both families did not want it to be reported or published as a suicide. As suicide. And so yeah. those are physicians. So we already know that physicians have the highest suicide rate of any other profession. Um, and so with my personal experiences, both cases, I knew they were suicides. People who are close to them knew there were suicides, but they were never reported or published as suicide shows that those numbers are much higher. Exactly. And even, you know, the funny thing I was telling, I was talking to one of the other doctors recently who does work with um, chronic care and, and, and we're talking and I said, you know, the 400 suicides by physicians per year, that study was done in 78, 1978. I was oh, told wow. that by a reliable source at a Texas Medical Association meeting last convention last year. So if those num- if that study was in 1978, there's no way it can be static because I know we're only talking about physicians. We're not throwing in medical students. We're not throwing in residents in the number. 
And you right. know, medical students were regular people until medical school happened to them. And I yep. see more residents and medical students, I see more of their suicides, more than I even see physicians. And yet physicians have a highest rate. So you can only imagine how twisted, how much the numbers can be if we really sat down to do a study. But it's very hard as understandable um, as it is that people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to, there's this shame and stigma and silence. And that's why some of us decide we're going to talk about it. Maybe we can chip away a little bit at the stigma and the shame. If I had gone through with my suicide thoughts when I had, when I had suicide, active suicidal thoughts, and I went through to, to suicide, I know for a fact that my father would never, ever say the word suicide. Because it's, it's a major taboo in Nigeria. Mm. I don't know that my kids will be able to open their mouth and say their mother died by suicide. I don't know that. Maybe there's one of them that I, one of the three that I maybe may say it because he's more liberal in his thinking, but I don't know that he will. There's right. A- it's a shame. It's a, it's a shamed thing. You know, it's like, it's, and I think that what you're doing, uh, this, this is why what you're doing is such important work because Talking about it makes it less taboo. Talking about it opens up an opportunity for people um, to learn. And I think that, you know, I have also had moments of feeling suicidal, uh, you know, and one of them had to do with my work. You know, there was, um, when I was working in a hospital, they had taken my credentials and they were using them. And then when I left that hospital, they continued to use my credentials to bill on patients. Mm-hmm. And this led, yeah, this led to uh, a huge, no, it's not. It's called Medicare and Medicaid fraud. <laughs> and so unfortunately, when the Center for Medicare and Medicaid noticed this, they thought that I, as the physician, was illegally billing. Oh, my God. It was the hospital that was billing under my name. Wow. And, you know, this led to a huge, huge problem for me. I mean, you know, we've all, I think all physicians have gone through some kind of weird, horrible experience at some point, but I couldn't work for five months. I was, I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to work again, you know, so 11 years of intense training, my whole life could have been, you know, my whole life as I knew it could have been over. And I did, I had thoughts of killing myself and I was like, wow, you know, why, what is, you know, how am I going to live? How am I going to pay my loans? How am I going to pay my bills if I can't work as a doctor? And, you know, I went online and I found, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, some other physicians who had been experiencing these things. And um, I saw some of Pamela Weibel's work and I realized I wasn't alone. And I realized that, you know, we all experience things. And I realized that this was an opportunity to hit the reset button. This was an opportunity to look at what happened to me as something that can, is a problem that can be fixed. Um, And, you know, I was able to pull myself out of that way of thinking because of those, you know, you know, because I was realizing this, this was something that was fixable. And I think that that's the thing. I think every single person who's having these thoughts and who's having these feelings needs to, needs to feel like there's hope. Yes. 
Yes, I was going to write that down. I think you said a couple of things. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing your own personal story because not many people, you know, are comfortable sharing it. But indeed, the more you talk about it, the better. But the other thing you mentioned is the fact that you actually reached out and then you realized that this too shall pass. But while you're going through the valley, I have to say for myself, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't think any other way. I just felt this was it. This was it. This was it. And so I want you to just, I want to say thank you to you for saying, indeed, it's not it. There is life after, but you have to reach out. And you did that online, you said. So was it doctors or was it other professionals? Who did you reach out to online? How did you do it? Well, I think I, I Googled, um, you know, feeling suicidal. And I came across, you know, I must have done something about doctor, um, doctor suicide, you know, something, something that made me come up with um, Dr. Pamela Weibel's stuff. Yes, ma'am. And there was actually a uh, resident who had jumped from the building of Mount Sinai. That's the um, one I saw. Was I think that one went viral on, on, on Twitter. It did because Mount Sinai covered it up. Yes. And tried to make exactly. it like it didn't happen. Exactly. And so, that was awful. you know, and this was another case where the family didn't want it to be known. And that's another you know so that we're constantly in this space where it's like you know uh like you said it's a very shameful thing you know this this resident was also an, um uh i think a foreign medical graduate mm-hmm. and so her culture was very suicide is a hush hush thing oh, and goodness. so um you know <laughs> oh, well i'm not i don't i oh, don't no, remember no, I just that i just and that. i don't want to dishonor this for this girl's life or exactly. her family That's the but thing. i also yes. you know i think that, that it's important to shed light on the things that Lead drive people to, exactly. to feel helpless Exactly. That's the whole idea. And that's why the podcast is all about the journey, the, 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 all the myriad ways that lead you on that road to suicide. Because no one, I don't know anyone, at least for me, who is like, okay, today I'm just going to be suicidal all of a sudden. No, a lot of things, a lot of trauma. And you know, one of the things I talk about is just because in your case, your drama with the hospital cause you to do that in my case it may not be that it may be my drama with my kids or my drama with my ex or my drama with life but either way we all got to that point where we felt despair we felt hopeless we felt helpless and that is the point where it's like okay what to do now and some people succumb right some people succumb wow well i do think it's really i mean so your your story is uh very commendable because you have hit the reset button on your life. Instead of, you know, you're doing direct primary care practice, you're recapturing all the beautiful things that you knew were possible in medicine, you're, you're creating a new life for yourself and for your patients. And I think that that's the important thing to realize. Every single human being has the ability to hit the reset button on their life. You know, people who are struggling with drug or alcohol addiction, um, you know, people who have struggled with um, being abusive, you know, there's, pe- you can turn things around, you know, if you look at the life that you've led, and you're not happy with the choices that you've made there, you do have an opportunity to hit the reset button 
apologize for the things you feel you know you need to apologize for forgive yourself have mercy on yourself we're all human um and step forward into a new way of being it's possible um and i think that that's what people who are struggling with um thoughts of suicide need to really understand not just hear but understand it I love that. I love that. It, it was so deep. That was, I tried to write as fast as I could, but I got the part of the fact that everyone has the ability to hit the reset button. I think that's the first time I've heard that being put in that context with, when it comes to suicidal thoughts. And indeed, as a pediatrician, I do know that it, it might be harder for the average five-year-old or harder for the average seven-year-old or the average eight-year-old for that matter to hit the reset button. But that's where the parents come in, understanding what their child is going through and being there for them. Of course, parents themselves are going through what they're going through. So it's like, oh my goodness, it could easily, easily you know, kind of get out of control. But I, I like that. I like the fact that you said that they should apologize and forgive themselves. Forgiving yourself is critical because, you know, in your own case, for instance, you didn't really cause it, but it was overwhelming. Well, I also, uh, you know, I was working locums and, you know, apparently it's my responsibility to make sure that the hospital is doing the paperwork properly, you know? So, you know, I think that I have decided that, you know, I may not ever work as an employed physician or for a hospital again. I'm, I'm not, not sure. I think that relinquishing all that power to these um, administrators was really a foolish move. Yes, and yes. I, I, I do realize that that was probably a mistake on my part, that I probably should have started a private practice from the very beginning. Um, you know, and so maybe I'll do that again someday. So are you doing, um, um, DPC right now? Are you in DPC practice right now? I'm not, I, you know, I was in the process of doing that and my mother had leukemia and she's actually, you know, she actually just went on hospice a couple weeks ago. Um, so I'm taking this time to be with her and, uh, to try to, um, you know, I, I, it's too much for me to do that now. Yes. I, I tried and I realized I was, I was feeling very conflicted as far as my time commitment. And so yes, I decided to just take this time with her. And we have to do our selfcare.com. You know that that's a big one. So we can never leave that self-care. So is that, is all this, your experience, is that be, behind the movements? Because I know you have, a, you have a passion. There's something you're doing with the, the P, DPAC, DP, what's that called? Yeah, I mean, so... It, I strongly believe that physician, physicians must have absolute autonomy in order for patients to get safe, appropriate care. End of story. Um, and I do believe that the current medical industrial complex, the way it's been designed, has been to designed to essentially strip physicians of their autonomy um, and to place a wedge between the doctor and patient. Um, and they've essentially co-opted the physician-patient relationship. And I think that in itself is the reason that, uh, you know, the death rate is increasing, yes. that chronic disease is increasing, that people are more depressed, 
that and people more distrusting, are... Um, and more distrusting of their physicians. I've never, I don't think there's been a, a, a time in, in the record that people have been just so distrusting of their physicians and there's so much hostility. Oh, the doctors make too much money. And where did that idea come from? Have you met an IT guy before? Like, it doesn't make any sense <laughs> in this business to make money. And that's why t- this morning before this interview with you, I had a meeting with the practice fusion, the rep guy who's helping me with my EHR. And he said three words that made me feel so good. I remember three words. I asked him, how many days do I have to sign my charts? And he said, there's no limit. I'm like, what? Whenever you want. You're no, the there's one. three words or maybe four. There's no limit, ma'am. You can, and not that I want to keep my charts for a month, but that is important to me. That's autonomy right there. You know, the Absolutely. fact that I don't you find sign three charts, forget or whatever, you know, no, I'm going to take my time and sign it when I'm good and ready because I'm good and ready. Not because there's some random person who doesn't know anything about medicine, didn't go to med school, is telling me to do that, you know? Right. Of course. And this is the problem, you know, um, because of malpractice, uh, the malpractice insurance carriers have essentially said, if you're employed physicians don't sign the charts within this amount of time, we're not going to, we're going to increase your malpractice rates. So a lot of this has to do with malpractice because if you wait three weeks to sign the chart on the patient who had a headache and nausea, and then three, three weeks later, you find out they were admitted for meningitis and da da da. This is why, okay. you know, we do have these time limits because for medical legal reasons, but it's really ridiculous and physicians need to have the appropriate amount of time to document accurately what happened. Exactly. Um, and okay, especially you, when you're extremely sometimes busy. You work, sometimes you work 12 hours back to back. When is the time to document the chart? And those 12 well, hours are seeing 30, 40, 50 patients or more. You know? Well, I have to tell you that my, my documentation was um, not as robust as I would have liked it. But I did try to make an effort to sign my charts the next day, Um, only because otherwise I would get so far behind. But oftentimes, I remember looking at some of my notes, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't didn't document enough for this patient and I'm putting myself at risk medical legally. I think I did the right thing for them, obviously, but I didn't document it. Um, And so we're constantly, when we are employed, I call it the RVU factory, hashtag RVU factory, because we're all working on relative value (laughs) units, you know. Um, But when we're working as employed physicians in an RVU factory, um, we essentially are, we're widgets who are turning out RVUs. And those charts are documenting the RVUs that we're turning out. And so if we don't document, the hospital doesn't get paid or the health system doesn't get paid and the insurance company won't pay and blah, 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 blah. Um, so that needs to end. That needs to end. And so, you know, the, the, you know, I wrote a chapter in the first uh, HIMSS blockchain healthcare textbook about this. You know, the medical record was designed so that physicians could communicate with each other about what happened and why they made the decisions that they made exactly. to, in order to care for the patient in the most optimal way. Now, that electronic health record or that health record has been made electronic and has been co-opted by insurance companies to become a billing uh, tool rather than a communication tool. And so part of, you know, what my, what our goal is through HPEC, which is the humanitarian physicians empowerment community, which is the company that I founded is to, you know, untether physicians from these systems that do not serve them or their patients. So in my opinion, 
opinion, the EHR in its current format um, is not serving physicians or patients. It's serving health systems and insurance companies and billing companies. It's not serving physicians or patients because it's not relevant information. The majority of the stuff in there is junk. It's incorrect. It's just boxes being clicked Checked. to like serve serve the billing company and the insurance company's requirements and it needs to end. And so that's one of the things, it's one of the goals, um, you know, that we have. So that's good. I could tell that you're very passionate about it. And for good, for good reason. I mean, when you've been burned, you don't want anybody else to get burned, which is very compassionate of you, by the way. But also I could just tell, just listening to you and watching you that you're very, very passionate about what you're doing. And, and hopefully, why haven't you been to the White House with this? I mean, this movement, has it been to the White House yet? Because it's such a good idea. I know maybe for, maybe too late for my generation, but maybe those coming after us, this is something that needs to get heard about? Do people know about it? I mean, well, first of all, definitely not too late for you. It's not too late for anyone who actually wants to practice um, medicine under the Hippocratic Oath that we all took, um, or the Oath of Maimonides or the Oath of Geneva, whichever oath that you took, we all took an oath to first do no harm and to care for our patients first and put our patients needs first and foremost. And the current system is not allowing that. Um, it is my strong opinion that if you're employed um, it is very difficult to put your patients first because you have to put your employer first yes. and the, and the, the needs of your employer and the needs of your patients are in direct conflict because your employer wants to make money and your patient wants to be healthy. Do better. And yes. Oh. Yeah. And so I'm not saying hundred percent. I'm not saying it's always the case. There are some, you know, uh, models where there's physician-run practices and ethical practices, and so there are some ethical health systems out there, like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, like a lot of the DTC practices out there. But in general, it's very, very difficult to be an employee and to be a um, patient-forward physician. That's right. And really employee period in any, any capacity as an employee, you're there primarily because of your employer, which hence the word employee, but I, I, there's well, no question. Well, I mean, if you're in the food service business though, and your employee, your employee, you know, employer is the owner of the sandwich shop, providing a, a high quality sandwich and product to your customer is your values are aligned, right? <laughs> okay. Well, so, I guess except in medicine then. In this case, yeah. with doctors and, and, and so is there any hope? I guess you're the right person to ask. Is there any hope? I mean, how far have you, you know, with your company, which is actually commendable, the idea, because I would have, I know it is, I feel the pain, but I would have never thought to start a company like that. So have you made any, any impact so far with your work with your HPAC? Well, we, um, we're in the middle of uh, investor our seed investment round, and we plan to open it up publicly come fall, late fall. And basically, this is just an opportunity to, for all physicians to um, have a way to digitally communicate uh, with each other and with their patients. So right now, if you're digitally communicating, it's your EHR company um, that owns the data oftentimes. It's not always. Um, there are some companies where you own the data, but, you know, two of the biggest companies, they own the data. They design it for the health systems. The health systems own it. So when you're 
working in a hospital, you don't own your chart, even though you, you put the data in. So if you ever leave, if you ever move, you can't take your information with you. You can't take your patient's information with you. If the patient wants to move to a different health system, it's very, very difficult and cumbersome for them to move that information. But the reality is that should be owned by the person who created it and the person who it involved. So it should be owned by the doctor and the patient. It shouldn't be owned by the hospital or the health system. And so it, in my opinion, it, as soon as physicians have ownership and control over their employment, their right to work, and their ability to communicate amongst each other about patients, um, only then can um, we recapture our autonomy. And so that's what we're, we're working to build through a digital physician's guild where we have digital identities, where we own our identities, where we own our communication rights to each other, our communication rights around our patients, um, where our patients are also allowed to take their information and, and data elsewhere to see a different specialist, to yes. see a different doctor, to move to a different state and have terms. all of their information yes. in one place. Yes. Um, that makes sense. And so that's what, we're, that's what we're trying to support and build. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I, I can only wish you luck with that because it sounds like when, if and when it does go global, it's going to make a huge impact. I can only worry about people like my colleagues in Nigeria. By the time that gets there, who knows if it's ever going to get there, but that's a great idea. But coming back to suicide and depression and all that good stuff, did you have any final, not final words, I hit that. Any, well, first of all, do you have a favorite quote? in life that help that you, that you, that you live by? And then do you have any words of encouragement? It looks like you already said reach out and reset, but do you have any other words of encouragement, anything else you would like to tell the parents of children or the majority of, because I know you saw many, many, many children. You didn't see just this one, but this one obviously affected you. But any- Well, you know, it's funny because you said a quote um, and I initially I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many. Um, and I, you know, this is a, I'm going to make this PG 13 because there's a swear word in this quote. Uh, but one quote, and I forget who it was, but it's, if you're feeling depressed, suicidal, helpless, mm -hmm. the first most important thing you have to do is to make sure you're not surrounded by a-holes. Oh, wow. I like that. That is actually, so, you know, if you are really, really not doing well, you're in the depths of despair, you've reached out to everybody else around you and you feel like things are actually worse rather than better, you're not getting the advice you need. Maybe you're asking the wrong people, maybe you're in the wrong environment, maybe you need to unplug from wherever you are and shift into something else. So if you ha are hanging out in bars, maybe you should go join a book club. Um, if you are around your family all the time and you've been depressed and you've been living with your family, Maybe you need to get away from your family for a while and go meet some friends that you haven't talked to since high school or, you know, join a, a group, you know, of a, you know, a hobby that you haven't done in a long time and reconnect with the self that you used to be um, when you were once happy, um, you know, rejoin your church group or go, you know, paddle boarding or go be with nature. Even by yourself is better than being surrounded by jerks. 
So, that so that's true. one quote that I really like. I like that. <laughs> it's a very, very, very long quote, but I like it. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Maybe not so much to the six-year-old and the eight-year-old. Happily, I can say that majority of children who attempt suicide are not six and eight. They are mostly at least between 11 and 14, 14 to 25, something like that. They're still youth, and therefore they could probably do what you said. It is hard, though. It is very hard at 16 because you're all about your peers, but it's time for you to look deep into the, the kind of peers that you're hanging out with, and are they really right for you? I had a patient once who had been struggling with depression himself, but his girlfriend also had depression and bipolar disorder. So he couldn't really reach out to her when he needed some respite. Right. So, you know, is that the right? should you be dating that person? Just bringing it down to the mindset of a 16 year old. If your best friend gives you so much stress all the time, puts you down all the time, maybe that's not the best friend for you. Maybe it's time to go by yourself and get another friend. And I think that's what she's saying in essence. For the adults, I think I don't have to break it down to you guys. You understand that a-hole is a-hole. But for a 12-year-old, if your best friend causes you to more, more aggravation, and, and it's hard. It's hard because you're all about your friends. Your cell phone, the text messages, if they're bringing you down, putting you down, they're bullying. If you feel bullied by your wife, your husband, your best friend, maybe you don't need to be around them. I had to do the hard, hard thing, unthinkable thing of filing for divorce after 13 years of marriage to the wrong man. And it was like, oh my goodness, what were you thinking? You know, what are you going to do? How are you going to raise your kids by yourself? What do you mean you left him? What did he do? You know, it's like, nobody asked Very brave. Me, what about Not me? Easy. <laughs> goodness. Not easy. Enough. Yeah, it wasn't easy to be a Nigerian female. I can count them in my hands. How many Nigerian females I know that fight for divorce? I can count in one hand. Because it's like, it's unknown, it's unheard of. You right. are wrong for doing that. It's like, but it's not the truth. I had to leave to save myself and then my kids right. subsequently, you know? But um, yes. thank you so and much. And that's not time. easy. I mean, I've been through divorce also and I didn't have children, so I can only imagine. So. When you throw you in know, the children. But it, look at you. Um, yeah. But you yeah. know the funny thing, though? If I hadn't left, I know I wouldn't be here today. I know I would be six feet under or he will be six feet under because I was homicidal. <laughs> no, 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 no. I left because yeah. I became homicidal. I didn't actually become suicidal. I became homicidal. And I knew I had to leave. It was too toxic. I just couldn't stay there. And I didn't want to be wearing orange as my new black. So I had to get out. But it was real for me. It was real for me. And many women... Well, the fact... I mean, this is another thing, though. It, it demonstrates that you had the foresight. You had the insight to acknowledge that what the thoughts you were having were not serving you. Yes, and that in itself, it's like, how do we cultivate that? How do we cultivate that in every single human? The ability to acknowledge that the thoughts you're having are not compatible with a healthy, happy life in order to help you shift your way of thinking, way of being, or shift your decision-making so that you don't end up, like you said, in orange or six feet under or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and that's what this is about. I think talking about it, I think sharing stories, I think, um, you know, acknowledging that, you know, you do have the internal strength to hit that reset button if you want to. So is that what you did in essence? Because, you know, when, you, when we go back to the, your story with your own, just your own struggles with the huge system, that's a ginormous shark 
in America at least, hospital system, Medicaid, Medicare, that's like the powers that be. How did you, you're one little person, how did you, how did you do it? What did you do? Well, I think that I, I read some statistics. I read a lot. You know, I read a lot. That's all I do right now, um, other than take care of my mother, of course. But I read a, a survey from the Physicians Foundation, um, and it said something like 70% of physicians were independent and owned their own practice before, like, 1970-something. And I said to myself, that wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. And I started reading about the history. Um, there's a, a brilliant physician named Kenneth Fisher who wrote um, Understanding Healthcare, I believe was the name of the book. And it went through the historical things that happened. I noticed this graph that I found where it showed you know, the, the percentage of administrators versus the percentage of doctors. And there, there's been an increase in administrators by like 3,000%. I believe it. And I said, you know, it wasn't that long ago that things were normal. It wasn't that long ago that physicians were able to practice medicine ethically. It wasn't that long ago that patients trusted doctors. So that gives me hope that whatever this nonsense is that's created this um, really toxic, toxic place to yes. be a doctor toxic, toxic, and toxic yeah. place to be a patient, uh, that can be reversed. It wasn't that long ago. We just need to not be afraid and just unplug from that and hit the reset button. And so that's what this is about. Amen. Amen. Wow, Dr. Houston, I bet you didn't even know you were going to go all these places. No, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it happens every time with every single guest. They, they're not sure exactly what's, how it's going to be. And then they're like, oh my goodness, I had so much fun in the sense that I was able to relax and kind of let loose and then it just started flowing. So thank you so much for gracing our pages. This was really, really worth it for me anyway. And it got me thinking about the fact that I do have a lot of physicians who are drowning as I speak in yeah. just the employee dumb and um, what they call, what one of my guests aptly called victimhood. She says she lived in victimhood for a long time. And a lot of our doctors, right. our colleagues, our beloved colleagues are living in victimhood and some of them are not thriving in victimhood. As you know, no. they're, they're, they're succumbing. Left it's impossible to thrive when you're constantly in conflict with your, with your ethics and with your truth and with your morals. And we, you know, we went into this to help people. Yes. So when we're put in a position where we can't do that, yes. but we're expected to work in that system, it's a very, very, it's, it's, it's very toxic. You know, I wonder whatever happened to the hamster on the wheel, because I know the wheel doesn't stop spinning. The hamster has mm. to get off, right? That's right. Because they're going to get fatigued. And that's what we're doing. I mean, I remember when I used to work with Communicare, and I'm going to say their name because I used to work with them. Every day I would come home like a, I don't know, nine o'clock, but my last patient was at seven, but I'm finishing charts and trying to make yep. sure that I, you know, I, I put bonus this and bonus that to get, and then it's just like nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. And the more you work, the more you work because there was no, there was no respite. <laughs> wow. Yep. wow. It's been amazing. Uncompensated administrative burdens are part of every day for most physicians, but it doesn't have to be that way. Yes. So hallelujah to DPC. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, no, thank you amazing. so much 
for hanging out with us. Ladies yeah, and thank you. You heard Dr. Leah Houston. She came here. She laid it out. Thank you so much. So many nuggets. We talked about her patients, the, the, the poor little eight-year-old who had to endure 72 hours in a hallway in a busy city hospital, actively suicidal, before he eventually got, she said, the general psychiatrist eventually agreed to come see him. And then, of course, he eventually got help outside of that hospital, just highlighting the fact that we have an acute shortage of help in the healthcare as well as in the medical, um, mental health realm is even acutely shorter. There's even a more, more shortage. I don't know the, ver the verbiage to use, but she just highlighted the fact that we are sinking and not really not able to save ourselves when it comes to mental health, period. And then she mentioned her own personal struggles with a huge ginormous mammoth of a system called the American Healthcare System, Hospital System, Medicaid, Medicare.com, and all their bullshit, really, if I want to put it that way, and just dragging physicians through mud and dirt and dust and all kinds of craziness, and her own personal experience with two physicians that she knows that have died by suicide so far this year, and the shame and the struggle with the silence and not acknowledging that it's suicide, which, as you know, if there's a problem, if you don't acknowledge the problem and give it a name, you can't even get on the road towards recovery or towards helping yourself with the problem. She then touched on some deep quotes. <laughs> if you're, what did she say? If you're um, depressed and suicidal, make sure you're not surrounded around a-holes, period. And yeah, how about we just use jerks? Since this yeah, okay, is, jerks. You know, I forgot that we were talking about pediatrics. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about everyone. Like when you asked yeah. who was my avatar, everyone. So jerks, a-holes, for me, I just call it the wrong peers. As a teenager, yes. if, peers, if your peers are not the right peers, get away from them. Get away from them. It may not be easy, but it's doable. And unless you change your mindset about the fact that this is doable, this person is not good for me, is just not good for me, reset that mindset, that way of thinking, and then you can be on the path towards, because indeed, you got to get out of it sometimes to see how bad it was for you. Like, I was in a toxic marriage. I had to get out of it. And then looking back, I'm like, wow, oh my goodness, it was that bad. Yes, it was that bad. And so we're here at the end of this. And the last quote is, uncompensated administrative burdens. That is what doctors are going through. So for the patients out there, just know that your physicians are human too. They also hurt. And sometimes they pay the ultimate price. And they take themselves out of the equation completely by suicide. And so be compassionate. Think about your doctors. We hurt too. And remember, you know, doctors who are listening to me, remember, you don't have to be in that system. You just don't, you just don't know that you can. But yes, you can. So Dr. Leah Houston, did I leave anything out? Did I pretty much catch everything? <laughs> you did wonderful. Thank you so much. It's so good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much <laughs> for hanging out with us. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Lulu, a.k.a. The Momatrician, Suicide Pages, the podcast, signing out. Thank you.